Hi there, this is Mrs. Franzel recording um, Chapter 11, Immortal Engines. It is called Air Haven. Once he had washed and slept and had something to eat, Tom began to decide that adventuring might not be so bad after all. By sunrise, he was already starting to forget the misery of his trek across the mud and the imprisonment in Speedwell. The view from the Jenny Hanover's big forward windows as the airship flew between golden mountains of dawn-lit cloud was enough to make even the pain of Valentine's betrayal fade a little. At breakfast time, drinking hot chocolate with Miss Fang on the flight deck, he found that he was enjoying himself. As soon as the Jenny Hanover was safely out of range of Speedwell's rockets, the aviatrix had become all smiles and kindness. She locked her airship on course and set about finding Tom a warm fleece-lined coat and making up a bed for him in the hold. A space high up inside the airship's envelope, heaped with a cargo of seal skins from Spitsbergen. Then she led Hester into the medical bay and went to work on her injured leg. When Tom looked in on her after breakfast that morning, the girl was sleeping soundly under a, war- a white blanket. I gave her something for the pain, explained Miss Fang. She will sleep for hours, but you need have no fear for her. Tom stared at Hester's sleeping face. Somehow, he had expected her to look better now that she had been washed and fed and had her leg fixed. But of course, she was as hideous as ever. He, he has made a mess of her, your wicked Mr. Valentine, the aviatrix said, leading him back to the flight deck where she took the controls off their automatic setting. How do you know about Valentine? asked Tom. Oh, everyone has heard about Thaddeus Valentine, she laughed. I know that he is London's greatest historian, and I also know that this is just a cover for his real work as Chrome's secret agent. That's not true, Tom started to say, still instinctively defending his ex-hero. But there had always been rumors that Valentine's expeditions involved something darker than mere archaeology. And now that he had seen the great man's ruthless handiwork, he believed them. He blushed, ashamed for Valentine and ashamed of himself for having having loved him. Miss Fang watched him with a faint, sympathetic smile. Esther told me a great deal more last night, while I was tending to her wound, she said gently. You both are very lucky to be alive. I know, agreed Tom, but he could not help feeling uneasy that Hester had shared their story with this stranger. He sat down in the co-pilot seat and studied the controls. A baffling array of knobs and switches and levers labeled in mixtures of Esperanto, English, and Chinese. Above them, a little lacquered shrine had been fixed to the bulkhead, decorated with red ribbons and pictures of Miss Fang's ancestors. That smiling Manchu airman air merchant must be her father, he supposed. And had that red-haired lady from the ice waste been her mom? So tell me, Tom, asked Miss Fang, setting the ship on a new course. Where is London, London going? The question was unexpected. I don't know, Tom said. Oh, surely you must know something, she laughed. Your city has left its hidey hole in the west, come back across the land bridge, and now it is whizzing off into the central hunting ground, like a bat out of hull, as the saying goes. You must have heard at least a rumor, no? Her long eyes slid toward Tom, who licked his lips nervously, wondering what to say. 
He had never paid any attention to the stupid tales the other apprentices swapped about where London was heading. He really had no idea. And even if he had, he knew it would be wrong to go revealing his city's plans to mysterious foreign aviatrices. What if Miss Fang flew off and told some larger city where to lie in wait for London in exchange for a finder's fee? And yet, if he didn't tell her something, she might kick him off her airship, perhaps without even bothering to land land at first. Prey, he blurted out. The Guild of Navigators say there are lots and lots of prey in the central hunting ground. The red smile grew even broader. Really? I heard it from the head navigator himself said Tom, growing bolder. Miss Fang nodded, beaming. Then she hauled on a long brass lever. Gas valves rumbled up inside the envelope, and Tom's ears popped as the Jenny Hanover started to descend, plunging into a thick white layer of cloud. Let me show you the central hunting ground. She chuckled, checking the charts that were fastened to the bulkhead beside her shrine. Down and down, and then the cloud thinned and parted, and Tom saw the vast outcountry uh, out country spread below him like a crumpled sheet of gray-brown paper, slashed with long blue shapes that were the flooded track marks of countless towns. For the first time since the airship lifted away from stains, he, he felt afraid, but Miss Fang murmured, Nothing to fear, Tom. He calmed himself and gazed out at the amazing view. Far to the north, he could see the cold glitter of ice wastes and the dark cones of the Tannhauser Fire Mountains. He looked for London and eventually thought he saw it, a tiny gray speck that raised a cloud of dust behind it as it trundled along much further off than he had hoped. There were other towns and cities, too, dotted here and there across the plain or lurking in the shadows of half-eaten mountain ranges, but not nearly as many as he had expected. To the southeast, there were none at all, just a dingy layer of mist above a tract of marshland, and beyond that, the silvery shimmer of water. That is the great inland sea of Kazakh, said the aviatrix when he pointed to it. I'm sure you've heard the old land shanty. And in a lilty, high-pitched voice, she sang, Beware, beware of the sea of Kazakh, for the town that goes near it will... never come back. But Tom wasn't listening. He had noticed something much more terrible than any inland sea. Directly below, with the tiny shadow of the Jenny Hanover flickering across its skeletal girders, lay a dead city. It stood on ground scarred by the tracks of hundreds of smaller towns, tilting over at a strange angle. And as the Jenny Hanover swept down for a closer look, Tom realized that its tracks and gut were gone and that its deck plates were being stripped out by a swarm of small towns that seethed in the shadows of its lower levels, tearing off huge rusting sections in their jaws and landing salvage parties whose blowtorches glittered and sparked in the shadows between the tiers like fairy lights on quirkmas trees. There was a puff of smoke from one of the towns, and a rocket came winding up toward the airship and exploded a few hundred feet below. Miss Fang's hands moved swiftly over the controls, and Tom felt the ship lift again. Half the scavengers of the hunting ground are working on the wreck of Motoropolis, she said. 
and they are jealous. They are a jealous lot. Shoot at anybody who comes near, and when nobody does, they shoot at each other. But how did it get like that? Asked Tom, staring back at the huge skeleton as the Jenny Hanover carried him up and away. It starved, said the aviatrix. It ran out of fuel. As it stood most motionless, there a pack of smaller towns came and started tearing it apart. The feeding frenzy had been going on for months, and I expect another city will soon come along and finish off the job. You see, Tom, there isn't enough prey to go around in the central hunting ground, so it can't be that that has brought London out of hiding. Tom twisted around to watch as the dead city fell behind. A pack of tiny predator suburbs were harrying the scavenger towns on the northwestern side, singling out the weakest and the slowest and charging after it. But before they caught it in the Jenny Hanover, rose up again into the pure, clean world above the clouds, and the carcass of Motoropolis was hidden from view. When Miss Fang looked at him again, she was still smiling, but there was an odd gleam in her eyes. So if it isn't prey that Magnus Chrome is after, she said, what can it be? Tom shook his head. I'm only an apprentice historian, he confessed, third class. I don't really know the head navigator. Hester mentioned something, the aviatrix went on, the thing Mr. Valentine took from her poor parents. Medusa? Strange name. Have you heard of it? Do you know what it means? Tom shook his head. And she watched him closely, watched his eyes until he felt as if she were looking right into his soul. Then she laughed. Well, no matter. I must take you to Airhaven and we'll find a ship to take you home. Airhaven. It was one of the most famous towns of the whole traction era. And when the warble of its homing beacon came over the radio that evening, Tom went racing forward to the flight deck. He met Hester in the companionway outside the sick bay, tousled and sleeping and limping. Anna Fang had done her best with the wounded leg, but she hadn't improved the girl's manners. She, she hid her face when she saw Tom and only glared and grunted when he asked how she felt. On the flight deck, the aviatrix turned to greet them with a radiant smile. Look, my dears, she said, pointing ahead through the big windows. Airhaven! They went and stood behind her seat and looked, and far away across the sea of clouds, they saw the westering sun glint on a single tier of lightweight alloy and a nimbus of brightly colored gas bags. Long ago, the town of Airhaven had decided to escape the hungry cities by taking to the sky. It was a trading post and meeting place for aviators now, drifting above the hunting ground all summer, then flying south to winter in warmer skies. Tom remembered how it had once anchored over London for a whole week, how the sightseeing balloons had gone up and down from Kensington Gardens and Circle Park, and how jealous he had been of people like Meliphant who were rich enough to take a trip in one and come back full of stories about the floating town. Now he was going there himself, and not just as the sightseer either. What a story he would be able to tell the other apprentices when he got home. Slowly the airship rose toward the town, and as the sun dipped behind the cloud banks in the west, Miss Fang cut her engines and let her drift in toward a docking strut. 
while harbor officers in sky blue livery waved multicolored flags to guide her safely to her berth. Behind them, the dock was crowded with sightseers and aviators and even a little gaggle of airship spotters who dutifully jotted down the Jenny Hanover's number in their notebooks as the mooring clamps engaged. A few moments later, Tom was stepping out into the twilight and the chill, thin air, gazing at the airships coming and going, elegant high liners and rusty scows, trim little air cutters with see-through envelopes and tiger-striped spice freighters from the Hundred Islands. Look, he said, pointing up at the rooftops, there's the floating exchange, and that church is St. Michael's in the sky. There's a picture of it in the London Museum. But Miss Fang had seen it many, many times before, and Hester just scowled at the crowds at the quayside and hid her face. The aviatrix locked the Jenny's hatches with a key that hung on a lanyard around her neck. But when a barefoot boy ran up and tugged at her coat, saying, Watch your airship for your missus, she laughed and dropped three square bronze coins into his palm. I won't let anybody sneak aboard, he promised, taking up his post beside the gangplank. Uninformed dockhands appeared grinning at Miss Fang, but staring suspiciously at her new groundling friends. They checked uh, that the newcomers had no metal toe caps on their boots or lighted cigarettes about their persons and led them back to the harbor office where huge, crudely lettered notices insisted, no smoking, turn off all electrics, and make no sparks. Sparks were the terror of the air trade because of the danger that they might ignite the gas in the airship's envelopes. An air haven, even over-vigorous hairbrushing, was a serious crime, and all new arrivals had to sign strict safety agreements and convince the harbormaster that they were not likely to burst into flames. At last, they were allowed up a metal stairway to the high, to high street. Airhaven's single thoroughfare was a hoop of lightweight alloy deck plates lined with shops and stalls, chandeliers, cafes, and airship shipmen's hotels. Tom turned around and around, trying to take everything in and make sure he would remember it forever. He saw turbines whirling on every rooftop and mechanics crawling like spiders over the huge engine pods. The air was thick with the exotic smells of foreign food, and everywhere he looked there were aviators striding along with the careless confidence of people who had lived their whole lives in the sky, their long coats fluttering behind them like leathery wings. Miss Fang pointed along the curve of the high street to a building with a sign in the shape of an airship. That's the gas bag and gondola, she had told her companions. I'll buy you dinner, and then we'll find a friendly captain to take you back to London. They strode toward it, the aviatrix in the lead, Hester hiding from the world behind her upraised hand, Tom looking about in wonder and thinking it a pity that his adventures would soon be over. He didn't notice a goshawk 90 circling among a shoal of larger vessels, waiting for a berth. Even if he had, he would not have been able to read its registration numbers at this distance or see that the insignia on its envelope was the red wheel of the Guild of Engineers. <laughs>